Welcome to today's edition of Differing Things. I have a special treat for you today. Today, I have a special guest host, Phil Scranton. Phil is a graduate of Mid-Continent University in Biblical Studies, and he pursued graduate work in Biblical Languages. He has been a pastor of two different churches, and he has written numerous magazine articles, especially articles concerning the Old Testament, and he has authored a number of books. Today, Phil is going to talk and address one of the most disturbing passages in all of Scripture, the last three chapters of the book of Judges. And he puts forth an interesting question. How does grace grow in desolate places? Now for today's special host, Phil Scranton. I'd like to share some thoughts with you today on a theme entitled, Grace Grows in Desolate Places. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, and this was before his name was changed to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God told Abraham about some things that would happen to some of his descendants. Abraham could be sure that God had the situation in control and was going to work through some difficult circumstances. But what he said about the Amorites has some curious implications. The Amorites were the descendants of Emer, a son of Canaan. They were Canaanites. The name Amorites means mountaineers or mountain dwellers. They were a strong and defiant people. I'd like to put a little different spin on this statement to emphasize things that we might otherwise overlook. I'd like to restate it this way. God said to Abraham, your descendants will be servants in Egypt for 400 years, but they will come out of there enriched. This delay it's in coming to the land, I promised you, will work out for the best, though, because I don't want your descendants to get here until the Canaanites are at their worst. Their wickedness isn't ripe yet. I will bring your people to this land so it can become my axis mundi or my earthly headquarters. This land will be the source of blessing to the whole world like I promised it would be. But it isn't corrupt enough yet to be ready for my plan to start. 
Why would God want to give the Canaanites time to continue in their wicked ways till they became completely corrupt? This land was going to be God's showplace that would represent him and his holiness to the whole world. Let me ask another question. Why would God allow the world he created in Genesis 1-1 to become a completely vacant chaos and darkness before he began its restoration? It was the place where he would begin a new race in his image. Here is where he would put the race that would be used to bring his whole creation back to himself. Why let such an important place become such a wreck? I've heard a lot of preachers deliver sermons, and more than once I've heard them say that they were going to speak on their favorite passage from the Bible or from a passage that was one of their favorites. Today, I'd like to talk to you about a passage in the Bible that I've hated for years. When I was a teenager, I decided that I needed to read through the whole Bible, and I did. There were a lot of passages that seemed strange to me, and there were a lot that I found boring. But when I came to the last three chapters of the book of Judges, I read a story that was so horrid and brutal and corrupt that I thought it shouldn't be in the Bible. I wanted to tear those pages out. I even felt embarrassed for God that something as terrible as that story was in his book. Most of you know what story I mean. You probably don't like it either. I re never really doubted that it was true, but I could hardly bear to read it. I want to tell you that story, but I want to tell it differently than the way you read it. And I think I will be telling it one of the ways that God means for us to read it. I'm going to tell it as a story about places. The place is the land of Canaan. The time of the book of Judges was approximately from 1400 B.C. to 1100 B.C. Joshua had led Israel into the land of promise and led the tribes in warfare against the people native to the area. But the victories were not complete. The nations were not completely wiped out as God had instructed. And since many of the Canaanites remained, it wasn't too long before the Israelites began to intermarry with them. And because they did that, they were drawn away from God and into the worship of Canaanite gods, and into the fights and struggles the Canaanites had with each other and with foreign countries. And they began to fall apart as a nation. And sometimes they were even fighting among themselves. It was following God and worshiping him that had held the nation together. And when those things diminished, the nation began to crumble. The Israelites lacked the long-term vigilance that was necessary to complete the work God gave them to do. 
Our story begins in the hill country of Ephraim. That is the first place for us to notice and remember. There was a Levite who lived there. We're not told his name because the story only wants us to think of him as a Levite. The Levite was fairly well-to-do, and he obtained a concubine from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the second place we want to remember. In time, the Levite's concubine was unfaithful to him, and she left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem. After about four months, the Levite decided to go find her and, as the scriptures say, speak to her heart and bring her back to himself. So he went to Bethlehem, and he was well received by his father-in-law. They ate and drank and enjoyed themselves for three days. The Levite said he would leave the next day, but the next day the father-in-law talked him into eating first, and then they got to drinking, and finally he stayed another night. The next day started out the same, but instead of staying still another night, the Levite took his concubine and belongings and left later in the day. His servant suggested that they stop in a Jebusite city, which probably was the same as Jerusalem. Uh, that was a place that Jebusites possessed at that time. But the Levite said he wouldn't stay in a city of foreigners. He would go on to an Israelite city. So they went on to Gibeah. That is the next place we want to remember a city in the land of Benjamin, and stopped in the city square. No one offered them lodging for the night, even though in that day, common courtesy required it. But just before dark, a man coming in from his field invited them and even pleaded with them to stay in his home. He also was from the hill country of Ephraim, like the Levite. A little later, a gang of wicked men who lived in the city encircled the old man's house and demanded that he send out the Levite so they could have sex with him. The man refused, and in an effort to save themselves from being broken into, they pushed the concubine out. She was raped and abused all night, and as daylight came, she crawled up to the house and died with her hands on the threshold of the door. The Levite came out in the morning and found her dead. He put his concubine on one of his donkeys and took her home. There he cut her body into 12 pieces and sent one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel with an explanation of what had happened. All of Israel was astonished by this and responded in unison, sending troops to punish the men of Gibeah for this atrocity. Believe it or not, the Benjamites of Gibeah refused to give up the men who brutalized and killed the woman. Instead, they started a war with the rest of Israel. In the first two battles, the Benjamites had the upper hand. But in the third battle, Israel got the victory. They killed most of the Benjamite soldiers 
and they killed all the women and children of the city and then burned the city. 600 Benjamite soldiers escaped to a rocky fortress where they held out for about four months. During this four months, Israel's army burned and destroyed all the Benjamite cities, killing everyone they found belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. When the 600 soldiers of Benjamin were all that was left of the tribe, the rest of the tribes finally realized what they were doing and repented and declared peace before the tribe of Benjamin was completely wiped out. But Benjamin was now doomed to extinction. There were 600 men left from the tribe, no women, no children. To make matters worse, when the war first started, the men of Israel all took an oath in the name of Yahweh that they would not give any of their daughters to Benjamin as wives. And they also took a second oath that any portion of Israel that did not send soldiers to support the war against Benjamin would be put to death. So, how were they going to provide brides for the remaining Benjamite men when they had bound themselves with oaths in the name of Yahweh not to give Benjamin any? An oath then was not like the lying promises of today. To take an oath in the name of Yahweh meant that if they failed to keep it, their life was forfeit. Here is the solution that the 11 tribes counseled together to preserve Benjamin and still maintain their oaths before God. They took account and found that the city of Jabesh Gilead had not sent anyone to support their war. Remember Jabesh Gilead. So they went to Jabesh Gilead and killed everyone except virgins who could be given to Benjamin for wives. Men, women, and children were all killed. The problem with this solution was that it only provided 400 wives. In order to obtain the 200 wives still needed for Benjamin, they told the men of Benjamin that at the annual feast at Shiloh, they could kidnap young maidens for wives, and they would intervene to prevent them from being punished for it. So in common terms, they made kidnapping and rape an acceptable substitute for marriage. Can it get any worse than this? Could Israel have fallen any lower? If this wasn't part of the Bible, I would doubt its truth just because it is so far out there. And yet, how could someone even make up something like this? But in a sense, isn't this kind of like God waiting 400 years for the Canaanites to become more corrupt and waiting until the earth had become a dead, formless chaos before doing his work of creation? Here's the point. The seeds of grace are so resilient and powerful that they can grow in the most desolate places. And God wants us to know that and believe it and use it. 
So we come to the end of the book of Judges, and we can't wait to turn the page. Things have got to get better. And they do. But we find that God keeps us in these black, dismal places where these unthinkably atrocious things happen. For the moment, we bypass the book of Ruth and pick up the narrative in 1 Samuel. It opens with an account about a man named Elkanah who was from the hill country of Ephraim, the same place the Levite was from. Elkanah's wife, Hannah, was barren. They went to the tabernacle at a yearly festival, and there she pleaded with God for a child, even promising that she would give the child back to God if only she could bear one. She wept as she prayed, and Eli, the old priest, thought she must have been drunk. He rebuked her for a display of emotion, but she told him it all came from a heavily burdened heart. Time went by, and Hannah gave birth to Samuel. You remember how the story goes? Eli did not control his sons, and they were very wicked. They had sex with women who came to the tabernacle for worship, and instead of taking the priest's part of the sacrificial meat by striking a fork in the pot that you eat while it was boiling, which was the way they were instructed, they took large pieces of raw meat. This left much less for the people offering sacrifices. And the people grew to despise bringing their offerings to the tabernacle. The tabernacle worship was corrupted and shamed. But Samuel grew up in the tabernacle and its service and became a judge of Israel when God eliminated Eli's house. Remember that Eli was a Levite. Samuel was one of the greatest leaders Israel ever had much greater than most of the things. Grace grows in desolate places. As we move along in 1 Samuel, we find the family of Jesse living in Bethlehem. The book of Ruth was bypassed, but Bethlehem was also the home of Naomi and her family, and it came to be the home of Ruth. Bethlehem was the place from which the concubine with the straying heart came, and the same place where Naomi's family's tragedy took place. But there, among Jesse's sons, we find David, the greatest of Israel's kings, before Christ came. And David was a man after God's own heart. Grace grows in desolate places. Also in the early chapters of Samuel, we find Samuel anointing a young man named Saul to be the first king of Israel. Saul was the son of Kish, a man of valor. In other words, an expert soldier and warrior from Gibeah. Gibeah was the city where the Benjamites brutalized and killed the Levites concubine. Kish and his son Saul were Benjamites. They were descended from the survivors in the war where Benjamin was nearly exterminated. The first king of Israel 
was a Benjamite. Grace grows in desolate places. Saul, the new king of Israel, was somewhat reluctant to take authority and start ruling the nation. He was a young man, and Israel had never had a king before. But an emergency arose. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had subdued the tribes of Gad and Reuben on the other side of the Jordan River. And he had gouged out all the right eyes of the men. This basically made them incapable of rebellion and warfare. They lost part of their field of vision, depth perception, and the ability to aim bows and arrows. But 7,000 men had fled to Jabesh Gilead and were hiding out there hoping that someone would deliver them. Nahash brought his army against the town and gave them seven days to come out and surrender and give up their right eyes. Young King Saul was working in the field of his family with his family's cattle when word came to him about the problem of Jabesh Gilead. Remember, this was a city that was wiped out except for the young virgins given as brides to the Benjamite warriors. The city was rebuilt since then by some of the Benjamite warriors and their bereaved wives. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and he took a pair of oxen and cut them into 12 pieces. These 12 pieces were sent to the 12 tribes of Israel with the message that anyone not responding to support Jabesh Gilead would suffer the same fate to their oxen. Remember the Levite and what he did to his concubine? Well, all Israel responded in unison like the 11 tribes had done before they came to the support of the people at Jabesh Gilead. Saul conquered the Ammonites, and Israel was freed from the tyranny of Nahash. Grace grows in desolate places. One final word. The concubine in the book of Judges died with her hands on the threshold of the door where she could have been safe. In the book of Samuel, we read that the worthless sons of Eli were responsible for the Ark of the Covenant of God being captured by the Philistines. The Philistines took the Ark and placed it in the temple of Dagon next to the statue of Dagon. When they returned in the morning, the statue of Dagon had fallen on its face to the ground before the ark. They set it back up. The next morning they came in, and the statue had fallen again, and this time it had fallen on the threshold of the door, and its hands and head were broken off. This time it was the god of the evil ones who died with his hands on the threshold. Even when Israel's symbol of God's presence was missing from them, God's grace was growing in desolate places. Those were desolate places. But look around and tell me what you see. Political corruption is everywhere. Moral corruption and crime abound. 
Our country defunds the police and turns criminals back out on the street. How far do you have to go to look for a godly friend you can share your concerns with and pray with? So, it's bad news, our situation today. And it's also good news. You know why it's bad news, but do you know why it's good news? It's good news because you can plant the seeds of grace all around you. You won't get a harvest from every seed, but some will sprout and grow, and there is no place so desolate that they won't grow. So how do you plant them? First, you plant them by being constant. You have to be steady. You have to be reliable and steady in your faith. Wishy-washy gardeners never grow anything. But you can also plant seeds of grace by taking chances and sometimes even by doing the unexpected. Lloyd Hibbert, a good friend, was pastor of Grace and Truth Chapel in Michigan for a number of years. One time a young man did some vandalism at the chapel and was caught. Lloyd talked with the police officer, and they agreed that if the young man would do some service and fix what was broken, the charges would be dropped. Lloyd knew the young man and the family situation, and he used the crime as a way to witness to the young man and plant some seeds of grace. I'm not saying that we should become a soft touch for or someone who's easily taken advantage of. The Lord Jesus said we should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But if you're going to plant seeds, you have to get down in the dirt and get your hands dirty. And we need to be willing to give the time to cultivate those seeds. When I was a pastor of a small church in Illinois, I taught a young people's Sunday school class. It covered middle school and junior high grades. I was blessed to be with two girls in that class when they confessed Christ as their Savior. It was a wonderful experience. But it was not without difficulties. For a while, I had difficulty trying to understand these girls and their actions. One was quiet. Too quiet. The other would vary from average to manic, sometimes seemingly incapable of being quiet or sitting still. Though their symptoms were opposite, they both suffered from the same problem. Both of them had a difficult home life. If you've never experienced it, it's hard to realize how children can grow up blaming themselves for mom and dad's fighting and yelling. It's hard to realize how severely parents' rough or cruel treatment can affect a child's opinion of themselves. It's hard to realize the life of a child without an average of an average intelligence who grows up with parents or step-parents who probably didn't and couldn't have graduated from junior high school and who blame the world for their situation. 
poverty, rejection by classmates at school, physical abuse, mental abuse, and even sexual abuse are much more prevalent in these United States today than we would like to admit. So how do you plant the seeds of grace in the life of a person who thinks they are worthless? How do you plant the seeds of grace in the life of a person who thinks everyone can look straight through them and see all the scars of their past? You have to be willing to stand by them where they are. You need to assure them that God made them and God doesn't make any junk. They may need someone to assure them that not all the bad things that happened to them in their lives were their fault. Let me tell you that a mother who came through these kinds of trials in childhood and found God's grace is a mother who's going to be sure that her children get a better start than she did. She's a person who will make a difference in her community. I had a chance years later to talk with one of these girls, the one that was probably in the worst home situation. After marriage, she and her husband were involved in their church, and she became a leader of the youth group. She was able to help a lot of young people with decisions in their lives. Her oldest son went to school to become a missionary. Grace grows in desolate places. Very often, it is not those who enjoy the best quality of life who become tomorrow's leaders. More often, it is those who overcome the greatest obstacles that can best lead. Paul said, not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble, but God chooses the foolish, weak, and contemptible because he's going to disgrace the strength and wisdom and pride of this world. If you've been blessed with the grace of God, where are you planting your seeds? We've seen and talked about a lot of desolate places, but there's one more desolate place we need to visit. Actually, it has been lurking in the background in all these other desolate places. I want to read to you Jeremiah 17.9, and I will give it from three different versions. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is crooked above all things, and it, it is mortally ill. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why did God want us to know that he would wait to start building the place of his capital city and temple on earth? until the people who lived there were totally corrupt. 
Why did God give us a picture of creation? It seems to have a starting point of total destruction. Why does the Bible contain a story from Israel's past? It so, is so horrid, you can hardly bear to read it. Perhaps it's because he wants us to know that he can truly change our hearts. When the Bible speaks of our heart, it is not talking of the organ that pumps our blood. It's talking about the inner you. It's talking about the person living in your body, your mind, your desires and dreams, your motivations, your values and priorities. It's talking about the person in you that your friends and family cannot see. The one that only you really know. The Bible says our heart is the most deceitful thing in the world. Sometimes we even deceive ourselves. And it is a heart that is deceived with a mortal sickness. Our heart is the most desolate place in us. But the seeds of God's grace can and will grow there and bring light, truth, and love. God intends to make our hearts his throne. We've called this a story about places, desolate places. And there's a very fitting verse to close our thoughts. It's from the Apostle Paul, and he was quoting from Hosea. It reads, And in the very place where it was said of them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. God will have his throne in every heart, every heart. That is his purpose. And he will accomplish it even though there are many steps yet to be taken. It matters not how dark and devious a heart may be. He has the piercing light, penetrating love that plants the seeds of grace in the most desolate place. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.